2: If you follow me on social media, you may have seen a post or two from Black Tree Resort in Colorado. Now, full disclosure, it's my brother's luxury glamping property, and it is amazing. And you don't just have to take my word for it. Vogue, USA Today, and even the Denver Post all agree. Now, I know many of you are looking for experiences to give and maybe even receive this holiday season, especially after we've been cooped up for so long. And Blacktree is just that. It is such an amazing experience. From the cozy private tents and private bathrooms and the gourmet meals delivered to your door, to the horseback riding, UTVing, fly fishing, and even intent massages, there is something for everyone in the family. Which is why I wanted to mention this cool gift box idea from Blacktree. So what they've done is to ensure that the experiential gift doesn't skimp on the joy of unwrapping, Blacktree is sending gift recipients a holiday box Filled with some of their best-selling items. Items such as hoodies, t-shirts, baseball caps, and a fan favorite, Bronco the Bear. A stuffed animal, to be clear. So what you do is you choose from a two, three, or four night stay and custom select the goodies for your gift box. And then Blacktree will make sure your loved ones have something to unwrap and receive now. While also anticipating their 2022 stay at this premier glamping location. Now head to blacktreeresort.com and see for yourself why I think this is such a great gift idea. Hey listeners, we've got lots of new things coming for 2022. But before we did that, I wanted to take a look back at our early episodes and re-release my top 10 picks for the month of December. To be clear, picking my favorite episodes is like picking my favorite child. So I based my decision on three criteria. One, Interviews of women who overcame something outside of the regular struggle of running the business. Two, a unique industry that our guests disrupted. And three, guests that were just as much teachers as they were storytellers. I hope you enjoy these episodes and please be sure to follow us on Instagram. We'll be rolling out our big news throughout December and I wanna make sure our podcast family is in the loop. Our third throwback episode is with Claire Crisp. This is one of those stories that lives at the intersection of obstacle and opportunity. Claire's a mother who turned advocate and author as a result of her child's rare condition. Her memoir, Waking Matilda, takes you on the family's journey through the hardship and the joy as they navigate this uncharted territory. Claire offers insight into the entrepreneurial aspects of authoring and self-publishing And she's honest and encourages you to find ways to share your own story and even fight to be heard. I hope you enjoy Claire's story. Thanks for stopping by Liberty For Her, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. We're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, here we are again, Liberty listeners, for another podcast, Um, and we're so happy that you're here with us. This time we have actually a dear friend of mine, Claire Crisp, who has just authored her very first book, and we're excited to tell you all about that and all about how she got to this point in her career. So, Claire, take it away. Uh, It's so nice to have you. Thank you. Um, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit, since the book that we're going to talk about is so much about your personal life. Mm-hmm. Before you tell us that, tell us who you were professionally before you yeah. started doing this.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I was born and raised in, in West London, and I went to college um, actually at the Floren- Florence Nightingale Hospital called St. Thomas's, And I trained to be a physical therapist, which was amazing, and I, I went on working. Um, in London area hospitals for the next 10 years so so that part of my my career was very much clinically grounded and um, I went from there to um, moving towards part-time work in the evenings once I had my first two children um, in my early 30s and then uh, having um, got married to an academic, the those years were spent very much traveling around trying to find a job and secure tenure and um, move to various countries for postdocs and so on. So I had these two little children and this sort of, this, this career that was waning really and um, decided at that point it was in their best interest for me to home educate them which Um, was another kind of um, dormant passion of of learning and and reading and and having these little kids with me. So um, the next 10 years were spent actually being based at home and schooling the older two um, until Matilda was born, which was in 2006. So that's a great um, place for us to
2: um, share with our listeners a little bit about your book, which is called Waking Matilda. So why don't you um, just give us a little bit of that story? Um, we want our listeners to go out and grab the book as well. So don't give too much away, <laughs> but share with us um, a little bit about what um, what your life was like before before the the author status,
1: okay. So Matilda um, was a very sort of typical, healthy, bonny little girl, and um, we'd spent her, her the second year of her life in Princeton, and the older two were nine and seven, respectively. Um, and come back to the UK to, to settle back into our lives there. And at the time, the World Health Organization issued uh, a warning about this pandemic called swine flu. Um, some of your listeners will recognize that as, as the H1N1 vaccine. And um, the European government sent letters to all parents, actually, with children under the age five, strongly recommending them to have their little children vaccinated. And um, we we actually had never vaccinated or since, of course, um, for flu. But Matilda was born with a really minor respiratory condition that made her uh, particularly susceptible to complications of, um, of swine flu. So after a, um, a long kind of thoughtful process, Oliver and I decided perhaps this was the one time that we would have one of our children vaccinated. So I took Matilda off to our GP clinic, Um, in January 2010. And within weeks of that vaccination, she began to display a really um, bizarre plethora of neurological symptoms. And as a clinician, I realized at the time, although the symptoms were somewhat staggered, um, I was very much aware of how serious they were. And um, we spent the next six months going in and out of hospital, and trying to find some answers for um, her symptoms which were you assigning it all to, uh,
2: assigning her symptoms to the vaccination n- at
1: that point no, no it was not just what absolutely what's not happened? no i mean the first symptom which was rather odd was that she suddenly was unable to sleep at night and what she did do I mean, we now know it to be something called hypnagogic hallucinations. But but of course, without a name or a label at the time, we just thought she was having really terrible dreams and and for some reason just could not sustain sleep. So we were up with her a lot at night and and she also began um, sleeping excessively during the daytime. Like one minute I'd be speaking to her and the next minute she'd be on the floor asleep behind my feet and I'd nearly trip over her or, or I'd say to the children, you know, just go ahead and get in the car. I'll be there in a minute. And she's asleep literally on the driveway. So there were some really serious symptoms. And, um, the first of those, um, was actually a a pretty pretty dramatic collapse that she had at my parents house just about five weeks after the vaccine and i took her into hospital and um, we were sent home saying that she had a urinary infection and i was quite relieved and thinking well it's pretty extreme but um there was a sense of relief but of course the symptoms kind of came um thick and fast after that and we went in and out to our local children's hospital in bristol um, And initially, they thought she had a cerebellar brain tumor tumor because she was unable to walk in a straight line and she was slurring her speech and she'd become incontinent. And and gradually. And how old is she again? She was three. She was three. So she was very articulate, but because she was becoming sick, she was unable to really explain what was happening. So I was kind of drawing on my kind of maternal intuition. Uh, and also my experience as a clinician yeah. and, and adding those things together, just taking her back and back and back to the ER room until someone paid attention to her.
2: So thank goodness for this person who identified what was going on. Right. What was your response? I mean, what did what did... Is it was a he or she?
1: It was a he it was a, a man quite a young guy actually called Dr. Shah who must have been his early 30s but was already consultant level so he he turned up um, just a couple of days after Matilda and I had been referred to a psychiatric unit by by the team that were looking after her and I was absolutely desperate at that point because you know I remember thinking you know it's it's not it's this isn't a psychiatric issue and actually if it is that's that's actually the best news you can give me because I can do the naughty step. You know, I've got this parenting thing down. Um, but the, a new guy came into the room, the hospital room that she was in, and and he actually dismissed the whole team and, and told them to go and write her notes up. Um, he said that they were illegible. And then he sat down with us for about an hour and just listened and Oliver and I started over right from sort of six months ago, you know, that she couldn't sleep at night but she was always asleep in the day and that she'd become incontinent, was slurring her words and that the strangest thing of all about her symptoms was whenever Matilda was happy, she would collapse and we we couldn't quite make the connection because it was so odd that whenever she did or experienced joy she lost complete control of all her muscle tone and and mm. sort of fell on the floor so as we're putting all this together to to Dr Shah he said you know you need to go home take her home for the weekend and and bring her back to me on monday but do one thing video her um And I thought at the time, gosh, that's so easy and uh, borrowed a video camera from my neighbour and and just took quite a lot of film that weekend of her trying to walk towards the trampoline because the idea of bouncing on the trampoline was so joyful that she couldn't get there. Um, Or just her laughing at the table when her brother cracked a joke and Matilda's head kind of collapsed into the cereal bowl and... So we took all the um, video footage back to Dr. Shah a couple of days later and he, he looked through it very quietly twice and Matilda was asleep in the stroller as she always was in the day. So he didn't really have much to go on in terms of like an assessment, but he looked through the, the films and he, look, he looked up at me and said, you know, I've never seen this in a patient under 17, but I think I know what it is. It's, it's narcolepsy. Wow.
2: Yeah. What what was your immediate response? Were you relieved that it wasn't something other than that? What did you know about narcolepsy? Um, yeah. I, I mean
1: I feel like I should have known more about it being a clinician but physical therapists don't don't do much with patients with sure. narcolepsy and it's, it's a very underrecognized and underreported and a misunderstood condition so I don't think we see those patients in hospital. Um, I don't think they're on the radar and Um, I just remember thinking, you know, it sounds like something that's not going to kill her. Yeah. Because we were we'd been warned that she might have had, you know, something much more serious and and her symptoms were so severe, I, I think there were many nights and days when we thought we were going to lose her. So so there was a bit of relief yeah. actually. I can there was imagine.
2: And so now what do you do? What do you what do you do with that diagnosis?
1: <laughs> um well you, you he actually took some blood from her to um confirm that she carried the genetic marker. And rang us back a, a couple of days later to say yes, um, she does have the genetic marker, and yes, she does definitely have narcolepsy. But in the meantime, you you do what everyone does, I think you just you just Google it, don't you? <laughs> yes, that I know. Can be doc- doctors then. hate yeah. that, and I I sort of do understand that. But on the other hand, we were so desperate for information, and for me, I needed to know. Was it treatable? I sort of understood on a fundamental level that she was forever changed and it wasn't curable, but that hope of of her having kind of a childhood and a life worth living, rest in treatment, and, and that's sort of what we put our minds to. That's
2: amazing. And I can't imagine what that must have meant for you as parents. Um, and then your parents have two other children, mm-hmm. too. So yes. you have to think about how do we navigate this as a family. Right. And I know that you were also having to navigate your husband's career mm-hmm. and what that meant and perhaps having to leave the UK, right. which ended up happening, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, His um, his job is interesting because... He's able to um, translate his work over here in the U.S. And we hadn't ever really thought about uh, moving over here permanently, although we'd done a couple of postdocs, one at Notre Dame and one in Princeton. But as um, it became really clear to us that Matilda's um, condition needed expert um, and specialist help and treatment, and that that wasn't available to us in England, then we began to think about maybe Oliver's job translating over here. So um, that was that was a pretty remarkable situation in that he was able to apply for a couple of jobs and on the understanding that he had to prove that he were, he could he was the only guy that could do this job above any American. so it was quite a tall order really. And that coming to California
2: opened a door at Stanford, I understand, right. or was it the other way around it was the it? other
1: way around okay. actually, so we we understood that Stanford was was the world leading center for narcolepsy research, and that there was a team there and a, um, a specialist, a man called Professor mino and i'd been in touch with his personal assistant, Marley Einin, who herself has narcolepsy, and she was the first person that Really gave me a window um, into Matilda's world, this new world that she was inhabiting, and this this place really where Matilda went at night when she hallucinated that we just couldn't reach her. So, um, Marley Einin basically facilitated. Um, treatment for Matilda under Professor Minu, but it required a move to the US and she said she said two things one of them was that you know if you can get anywhere in the US we'll get Matilda the drug she needs and the other thing was if you can get to California then Stanford will be her local doctor so the, the challenge was on, we had to get to, to California. <laughs> well, you did and we're glad, you we,
2: we're glad that you did um, for Matilda's sake above all, but um, um, California is lucky to have you here. And really this is a great place to tell your story mm-hmm. and has been, I think a great place because of the resources that are around right. you. I wanna tie something up for our listeners really quickly. So was the narcolepsy a result of the vaccination? Yes. Okay. Um, and so now, bring us a little bit into what's what's going on with Matilda
1: today. How mm-hmm. old is she? She's ten. And how is she doing? She's doing quite well. She's um, she's really she's optimally treated on a sort of a, a range of medication. The uh, most important one is a drug called Xyrim that she takes uh, twice at night, every three hours. And that enables her to have a block of sleep at, at a time. Um, and she's on some daytime stimulants that help her stay awake when she's at school. Um, and they also help her condense her daytime nap. So without treatment, narcolepsy is incredibly disabling because you, the, the, the people are asleep all day, on and off, and and that's very hard to function when you're that sleepy at all. And yet at night, they can't shut down and sleep Mm. and get restorative sleep. So um, with this kind of very finely tweaked cocktail of medications, Matilda's actually, she's doing quite well, but of course she's entirely dependent on on these medications.
2: Um, So it sounds like she's having really quite a normal childhood as far as... um her circumstances are mm-hmm. concerned. Now let me point back to you as a mother. So if a child needs medication every three hours, there's somebody that's <laughs> getting up to give them that. Yeah. So what has that meant for you and your husband in terms of now that you 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 keep referring to Matilda's world being changed, but oh, your yeah. world was changed. Yeah. So what, what was that
1: like? Yeah, no, I would, I mean, casting my mind back all the way to the sort of hideous year when she became ill and we didn't know what was wrong with her right the way through to diagnosis and then um trying to forge forge a, a pathway through to her being treated I think all of those things um on a practical level are life-changing but the the struggle I had really was was much deeper than that it was a, it was an emotional um heart-wrenching and heartbreaking experience that lasted a long time and um when you go through something like that i think it's whether you like it or not life is never the same and yeah. that was that was a real tension for me because i i physically wanted to kind of turn back the clock i remember just trying to think if only i had the power to do that you know rip the clock off the wall and and turn back time the re- the regret around the vaccine and the horror of seeing her suffer so so much was was, was an ongoing nightmare for me. So I think, you know, if, if you're honest with yourself, if you've been through something like that, it's what I would call a transformative experience. You are never the same but you're right to point out the nights because our nights have not been the same either um so oliver and i take it in turns one night on, on duty and one night off duty and um, the person that's on duty medicates matilda they get up with her twice and also she tends to wake like at five when her meds have worn off and mm-hmm. rummage around in the kitchen and try and cut an apple and eat and so that's a bit messy so the person that's on duties is, is Pretty much up between three and four times a night. It's like uh, having an infant. Yeah,
2: I mean, and you just wait for those days to be over.
1: I know. But it's, it's, you know, it's never going to be over. It's never going to be over.
2: So the transformation to her life, the transformation to your life and your family's Mm -hmm. life was this something that you knew I have to write about this I have to tell this story what give us a little bit of why you wanted to tell such a personal story
1: you know I think what struck me during the those sort of first 2 to 3 years was how quickly I became isolated you know I consider myself an extrovert I was plugged into home school network I had lots of friends we were at church we were we were doing anything and everything in fact my my parents you know my nickname is 10 things a day claire because i was so busy <laughs> and i had this incredible capacity to perform and and do things with the children and people and i i kind of love that but um when suddenly chronic illness hits your family things are so changed and i i found myself sort of isolated and alone overnight um But all the time I was thinking, you know, I know there's other families out there. I know there are other children with narcolepsy. And I came across a few statistics. One of them was that something like 20% of American families deal with someone in their family who has a chronic illness. It might be a child with autism or epilepsy or an elderly parent or something. And the other statistic that really struck me was that and I, I hope I hope this is true, but I've come across it time and time again, something like 90% of marriages where you deal with a child who's chronically ill end in divorce. Mm. So I was very aware of these, uh, of feeling isolated and the kind of threats that were knocking at at my door. And I thought, you know, if, if I'm going through it and, and sinking here, then I cannot be the only one. And if I can if I can tell my story, which we have come out the other side, um, you know, as I said, life isn't the same as it was a few years ago, but it is full of hope and and joy. And uh, we have what we would call return to something like a near normal life. Um, Then I want to reach those people. Yeah.
2: So it wasn't necessarily, I mean, your family knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. This wasn't, for the sake of the the children mm-hmm. to one day look at this was really uh, right. a social sort of reaching out yeah. gift that you wanted to be yeah, able to provide. Th-
1: sort of on two levels. I mean, reaching other um, parents who are struggling and um, is definitely a passion of mine. But also, I think as an adult, if you become ill, you you know you've had your education and your character is formed and. Um, you're able to articulate yourself and maybe even advocate for yourself. And when you think about, um, a devastating and disabling illness on a child when they have no voice, then that is profoundly disturbing to me that they, they have nowhere to go with that. And, and as parents, we are their only hope sure. and their advocates. So, so it is about giving Matilda a voice, but she represents hundreds of thousands of children and and they matter. Well, <laughs> and
2: I just, you know, uh, for all the work that you've done, the hard work um, of being able to re put all these pieces back together so you can tell the story, Mm -hmm. the hard emotional work that you've done. (laughs) Thank you. It's a, it's truly a gift. And I don't think you have to be dealing with narcolepsy to be affected by Mm -hmm. this book. Um, I've read through many pages where I can see myself in it. And so I thank you for that gift. So we're trying something new around here. We're gonna start acting like a real media company and partner with brands we love, brands we actually want to share with you. We're doing this for a couple reasons. One, in order to keep bringing these stories to you, we need to pay the team that pulls it all together each week. And two, these collaborations actually provide another way for us to shout out and share female-founded ventures as well as resources we think you'll love. Our first partner is someone that's near and dear to us. She's even been interviewed on the podcast. You can check out episode 98 for her startup story and her advice on scaling your business. This is none other than Marin Costello. Now, Marin's jewelry is a brand that I've both worn and shared with friends. Her designs are always on trend, and for some reason, they never go out of style. How can you do both? I don't know, but she does it. Everything's made in the U.S. It's hypoallergenic and water resistant, so you can wear it all the time. And they're committed to sustainable practices, like recently they've started using environmentally conscious stainless steel and sourcing products from manufacturers that share these values. And if you're a fan of layering, well, you're welcome. Head over to shopmarincostello.com. That's s h o p m a r r i n c o s -S 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 T-E-L-L-O.com and layer stack and load up on the gold and silver to your heart's desire. And there's no need to feel bad about this little indulgence because when you use the code NETA15, that's N-A-D-A-1-5, you'll get 15% off your purchase now through December 31st. So head over and get to shopping and remember to use Neta N-A-D-A-1-5 to get 15% off all your shopping from now through the end of the year. Did you ever want to be a writer, Claire? <laughs>
1: um, I... Um... I went to college to do physical therapy. Partly, because, I mean, I loved loved the sciences. I was strong in sciences, and I I love work. The idea, any way, of working with people that were ill, but um, there was definitely a reader in me, and I did actually want to go to college to do English, but it was um, back then not considered a particularly good vocational option um, in sort of with my background and so forth so I kind of dismissed it like no one in my family had been to college and you know writers are C.S. Lewis and and Oxbridge aren't they and I was sort of not from that stable really so um, I was quite happy to pursue the kind of clinical side but uh, reading and I did write poetry long before computers were out there, so it's probably just as well none of them are recorded <laughs> but um I, re- I definitely was a reader um and I think being married to a writer that that whole world has has been part of my world It's yeah. been pretty natural really to yeah. be able to
2: well it's outstanding um Thank you uh gifted me with a few pages <laughs> to read before the book came out and I, it was such a stark, um, I, I guess, experience for me. Right. To, because I knew you were going to write the book, right. and we had had conversations mm-hmm. about what that would look like. But then to really have something in my hand, and I was like, she's a writer. <laughs> this isn't just about a story that needs to be told. You're quite a gifted writer. Um, so I wanted to know if there was sort of this, <laughs> I've always wanted to do this, or was it really... Um, I think, pushed into your life because of Matilda's story. And it sounds like Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of both, both, a little bit of both. Um, So a lot of women that I talk to who either want to be an author or um, as the case with a few people that I've just interviewed are authors. Mm -hmm. um, They would not consider themselves uh, entrepreneurial And I've often said, well, you're producing a product and you're finding sellers and you're finding buyers. You are, in fact, an entrepreneur. And I think in this day, more than ever, um, where the publishing model isn't what it used to be Mm -hmm. and people are having to create platforms and an audience um, that is clamoring for for what they're about to produce, that it really takes that sort of entrepreneurial mindset. Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself (laughs) an entrepreneur? I th- yes, I do. <laughs> and did you, in the process? I mean, I just as we walked in to right. set up for this um, <laughs> on Claire's kitchen table is a giant piece of like craft paper, butcher block paper um, that you would see in a like a hipster coffee oh. shop or something. That's um, all of her handwritten notes about the strategy, the marketing mm-hmm. strategy. So. That's the kind of stuff that I'm
1: talking right. about. Did you anticipate that when you were writing um, this? I didn't in the first few months, but I quickly got on board with having a longer term vision, I think, for the book. Because it's one thing, isn't it, to, you know, put your heart and soul on, on paper. and But, you know, what good is that if, if it's sort of, if I just... You know, close the computer lid down or tuck it under the mattress. So, I very much had a vision because I want. I feel so passionate about reaching families and, and parents with with children and giving those children a voice. So, um, I started to look pretty long term even early on, and it, it was um, you know very clear to me that you needed to have a marketing strategy. I mean, I don't particularly love that word, but. Um, But it's true. (laughs) It's true.
2: And I think uh, this came up uh, when we interviewed another author who kind of made that whole thing like it was ugly and Mm -hmm. it diminished the value. Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's a strategy to get this very powerful piece of information and this very powerful story into someone's hands.
1: And there's nothing ugly about that, right? In fact, I was surprised really because, you know, I came to blogging Uh, probably six months into the book somewhat reluctantly because I thought really do I have to you know do I have to do a website and all that as well it's just gonna (laughs) slow me down but you know the wonderful thing about um, blogging apart from doing these like vignettes of your life and sort of practicing your writing skills is is the connectedness you have with people and your audience and and that surprises surprises surprised me and um it was just delightful to kind of be able to reach people and impact people and see kind of how effective just a few hundred words were in reaching someone that, you know, lived on the other side of the world. So sure. so it was hard work, but it, it was, you know, really delightful in terms of me being connected to, I suppose, my audience and, you know, that word platform. Yes, more people read it and that was always pleasant, but... Um, it was it was knowing that what I was writing was resonating with people, and if it resonated on a blog post, then maybe just maybe, yeah, my book would touch those souls, and that was exciting.
2: Well, and I can imagine that for the blog readers, it was this this buildup of anticipation that we've been on this journey with Claire, <laughs> yeah. and now when the book is out, we can right. celebrate right. and right. read all of it. Mm-hmm. It's in Join its it in- together. Entirety. Yeah, I really yeah. get a, a sense of that. Um, now that you're a published author, and I would say, I don't know if you say, but an advocate, mm-hmm. um, which of those two titles do you hold most dear?
1: Um that's a difficult one. I, I don't want to like wimp out of that question, but I do, I do (laughs) do want to say they are mute. They are compatible. Okay. Very much so. And I think, you know, as an advocate, you're empowered and, and have more credibility. If you can stand on a platform with, with a book in your hand, um, and equally as an author, you have a voice to be an advocate. So those things sort of are very married to me. And, um, I think they, you know, I, I feel if I have a, a platform to stand on at a conference or when I speak, um, both of those are, are apparent in, you know, how I deliver and, sure. and my story. It's very hard to disconnect one from the other because my, my story is, um, is about both really. Well, and I would think
2: one offers the other credibility, right. validation. Right. Um, it, it, in and of itself, mm-hmm. is its own platform. Yes. Um, depending on the particular venue or audience yeah. that you're speaking to. Um, okay, so this is where we sort of transition. Um, but actually, before that, I want to ask you what kind. Of, what is your next move, personally? You've talked about you want this book to be. Um, a long term project Mm -hmm. a lot of people put out a book and it's it's exciting and there's Mm -hmm. all this energy around it and then it's, it's over. And for you, because of the story Mm -hmm. and because of the people that you want to touch and because you are acting as an advocate, it has a longer life. But what's, Mm -hmm. what do you view as next? Is there another book on the horizon? Are you going to spend time (laughs) on a speaking circuit? What can Um, we expect from you? I think there's
1: two things again, going back to the previous question. One of them is that, um, as an advocate, I'd like to continue to give, to reach those families and, and give those children a voice through through my our own story and um, speaking on how to raise children who are chronically ill and live fully. That's, that's something I think that's um, really passionate um, to me that it's one thing to have a chronically ill child, but you don't kind of have to live, you know, where I was a few years ago, like broken and mm. just couldn't see a way forward there there is a way forward and having come out the other side i want i want to share that with people that life doesn't look the same that matilda can't do all the things her friends can do sure. but she can do these other things and those things are really beautiful and meaningful and they they give her and our lives meaning so there's that um definitely on the advocacy side um and on the writing side i've i've loved the process so much that um and even just like setting up my own publishing company and um getting that book in my hands i think there's a lot to share with how how that process works out and how exciting it is and how doable it is i mean yeah. i'm surprised that yeah you know a few years ago i was still like knocking on all those publishers doors and waiting for the email that four months later came through and said it's really well written but <laughs> uh, <laughs> we don't make the dumb person oh, sound so- american <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. It's uh, okay. They well, weren't yeah. <laughs> um, So I think that you know. Um self-publishing is is super exciting right now and it's moving at an incredible rate. And I I want I want to be part of that. And- that I'm asking you that question oh, the that second next? half no, because sorry, it's, it's it's I'm so excited that you
2: self-published and that we, we have you to, <laughs> to inform us. So now, for real, okay. we're gonna transition right. into you as the expert, into you sharing advice with our listeners. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that are listening who either Want to write, have always right. dreamed of writing a book, don't know where to start, right. are intimidated, um, or on the flip side, think all they need to do is put up okay. a few blog posts and everything <laughs> is going to be dandy. Right. So we want you to sort of give us the skinny on those things quickly and... Um, why don 't you start with since you were talking about the the self publishing thing, why did you make a decision to self publish versus because you the reality is the book is so good that if you waited a little bit longer Maybe. It, 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 it could have happened so Maybe. what give us um, that process I think tell the, us that process the project
1: for me was time sensitive I, want, I, I really knew there was a story there, and I was determined to write it, and I was well on my way and I really didn't like the idea of people slowing me down. I didn't I didn't want to hand over to, you know, wait three or four months for an agent to say, mm, you know, it's gone through to the next stage and let you know at Christmas. You know, I thought I'm over that. Um, I think I can do a better job and I can do it on my timeline and I can be as creative as I want with every aspect of the process. And seeing as I'm going to have to market this book anyway, yes. I might as well get the profit for it. So, um, let me, I'm going to stop you yeah. there because that's a really,
2: really, yeah. really important distinction yes, <laughs> that a lot of people don't, don't understand. Know. And, um, I'm only saying this, I don't usually do this, but I'm only going to tell a little bit of my own story here Woo-hoo. because it applies to what Claire's saying. So, I I had a book that was published by a major publisher. And one of the things that I thought or that I (laughs) misunderstood was, was that, aside from the distribution, that there was a marketing vehicle in place. And what I quickly realized was I was the one having to Mm -hmm. get the Barnes and Nobles gigs up and do all the speaking. I was the one that was going to have to advocate for myself Mm -hmm. and really come up with this Mm -hmm. strategy. And I think if anybody thinks that's what they're getting, unless you are a celebrity and you have a book that's going to sell a million copies, um, it's not going to happen. Uh, and so the distinction between self-publishing and publishing in a in a more traditional way, if if that's what you're hanging on to, mm-hmm. we're here to tell you, <laughs> let go. Yeah. let go because that is not yeah. that is not part of the package, okay, so I apologize, but I, I think that was a really important yes, distinction. It is. so
1: I think you're right. Spot on with that.
2: If, if you didn't have a husband who had written books, and if you didn't have the ability, because I'm sure people told you along the way, like, you are a writer here. You've got something. Would you have been so bold as to self-publish?
1: Well, I actually wanted to self-publish early on. Oh, you did? I did, because I, I've seen him publish 20 books and get a check through after seven months <laughs> for 17 cents. Yeah, yeah. And not even be worth walking down to the bank to cash in. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying everything's about money, but, you know, there isn't a marketing strategy. Well, he's no, you like, actually end up being beholden to right. the publisher. No, it's so it's hard, this yeah, it's hard for you and to also, move he, that And also, he's a forward. false writer, unlike me, and he'd submit a book. And honestly, it would go go out the window. We'd not even think about it for two years. And then it would and I just thought, I don't want to wait two years. Yeah. There's print on demand technology people. Come on, yeah. you know. What are we waiting There's for? Let's create space. There's so many resources. I mean, in fact, it's overwhelming to try and kind of sift your way through what, what's a good fit for you. But, you know, with that amount of available and affordable resource, you know, I I I want to talk about cost for a little bit because my budget was minimal for my book. And um I've already broken even on it, so I'm only five weeks in, and I get that That's it's not awesome. all about money, but, you know, I've paid it in- Why, though? Why do we diminish it
2: and say it's not all about money? Right. It, it costs money to publish these things, it and does. wouldn't it be lovely <laughs> if there was some residual income that was coming <laughs> oh, from this after, really after
1: all of your hard work? I think it's totally yeah. fair to and talk about And I think, I think the, the fiscal reality was definitely up there for me in um, deciding to go on the self-published route. So actually my husband was like, you know, is a lot more kind of kudos with, with being in a, you know, going trade and like, but I don't need kudos. I don't need a job. I don't need to be a professor. I don't need someone to tell me a good, I know I've got a story (laughs) and I know I can write it. So actually... Yeah, she just said that, everybody. (laughs) We should just drop the mic and end this right now. No, um, you're right. I didn't actually, then I started to turn it around and think, actually, these these traditional publishers, they're holding me back. Mm. They're holding me back. They're slowing me down. They're not going to give me what I want. And they're going to make me work for it. And I've done the work, so I'm going to take it and run. And and I think because self-publishing is moving so fast and is there are so many opportunities and, you know, you hold a self-published book now and you can't tell the difference. You yeah. know, five years ago, I think you would have said, oh, it looks a bit, you know, it's yeah. a bit self-published or whatever. I think yeah. that technology's changed. Um, and with print on demand right there, you can upload your book onto Create Space and seven days later hold it in your hand. I don't know a single publisher that would do that for you.
2: No. No, it, it, there isn't. there, there isn't. isn't one. No. And I would I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. <laughs> but I would also add that you, even in the publishing process, you have to have your own editors, your own. you cannot rely right. on that beast, that Mm. machine. Because of what's happening in the publishing world, these 22-year-old graduates are there. Every few months there was somebody else doing the editing and no one knew where the last person left off. And so I think what's happening in the publishing world is affecting the traditional publishing model. And what's happening at lightning speed, as you mentioned in the self-publishing world, is starting to it's starting to build scaffolding for really good writers to go out and do right. their own thing, yeah. and the um, I think it used to be that you wanted the traditional publisher so that you could say I had blah blah blah. It doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. People want access to information, mm-hmm. and there, if there's a blogger that mm-hmm. can get the attention that they can get, then surely a self-published book, it, you know, could do the trick. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more, because I think this is a really important right. subject. I want to spend some time on. Is there somebody that you would recommend? You know, what perhaps you should go the traditional publishing model versus? Um, this wasn't a trick question, but no. it, I always want to know because sometimes we say things and we say oh that was good for me right, but for right. someone else
1: yeah um it is a good question i think you know if 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 your career um and job depend on being trade published like if you're an academic and mm. you need the cu- kudos yeah. of publishing with oup or whatever are then- you saying kudos yes, just right <laughs>
2: I'm teasing you. Did I say it, right?
1: You said it perfectly. It. I, I prefer the way you say it, actually. You know, if you need that, then knock yourself out. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who, who else other than scholars in the academy would need to go trade at this point. Yeah. That, that sounds a bit of a... A wide statement, but fiction, nonfiction, you know, I've been in a writing salon and people are doing everything from memoir to mystery to YA to poetry and, and totally successful and, yeah. and um, kind of realizing their dreams and, and not being held back. So I'm not, I'm not sure other than academics. That, that's
2: a, No, that's a good answer. And I think again, yeah. an important distinction, right. um, Okay, so there's a woman listening right now and she's thinking that she's always wanted to do this writing thing. What personality trait do you think mm-hmm. a writer must have? And you would mm-hmm. say, if you don't have this, just find something else. Go start a yoga yeah, yeah. studio. right? Um, and But if you have this, you're golden.
1: Okay, so if you have even the... L- slightest bit of introversion I think you can do it now I I was an extrovert in another life and and partly that changed for me when Matilda became sick and I was just home a lot more and a lot more reflective and alone and um, but writing um, is somewhat isolating because mm. you're like physically sat down mm. for a few hours a day so um, that might be challenging for wild extroverts I personally like I like that time out, um, yeah. so um, that f- sort of feeds my introversion. And when I'm needing company and I'm still writing, then that's where writing groups and and conversations with other authors come in. So if you were like right off the end of the extrovert spectrum, you might struggle a little bit. (laughs) Okay, that's good. Just that (laughs) sitting still and being with yourself. Yes, you need to be happy with that for sure.
2: Yeah, I think you talked about you were more of an extrovert Mm -hmm. and then in your case through Matilda's story and and what happened with her. But I would say it seems to me that as people... Uh, get more wise backslash older right. um, that we start to settle into mm-hmm. some personalities right. that we didn't necessarily right. own as we were younger because yeah. I, I think I'm moving more into that introverted right. space as I right.
1: or maybe something to do with like I quite like being with myself.
2: Yeah. No, I actually think, th- I th- I think there's more, a lot I'm of wisdom okay, in that I'm okay statement. Company, you yeah, know? I'm, I'm okay company. Yeah, oh, I'm okay company. This um, isn't too bad. No, no. And I'm more comfortable in my right. own skin. I hope that's what it is. I hope it's not just because I'm lazy and I don't want <laughs> <Exactly>. to go out. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit of that too. Um, you had talked a bit ago about uh, a wealth of resources mm. for self-publishing. Mm-hmm do any come to mind that you can share with our listener and we will ask you this um, later and then we can put this in the oh, show great. notes so okay. if, if, you, if nothing yeah, comes to there's mind there's so.
1: loads and loads of books I mean there's um, you know Bird by Bird um, Anne Lamont always recommended, yeah. always recommended Stephen King's um, memoir on writing I've got like 20 books over there which I'll give you but if you're just tapping away on the keyboard check out The Creative Pen by Joanna Penn and the online resources um, just on that website alone because she's a she's an incredible communicator and, and will link you to podcasts all over the web so just hit the creative pen and you'll be there for like a week oh that's just, great yeah it's incredible the resources she's so far ahead of the game and um, everything from like cover art to soft launch to post-launch depression to you know why to self-publish and um, all those all those little worries that you have as, as you start out, she, she covers somebody's holding your hand along the Um, way. Oh, that's great. She connects everyone with everyone. So there's, there's a good place to start.
2: Okay. That's a great tip. Thank you for that. Um, okay. Talk to us about the day to day. Did you have a strict writing schedule Mm. and do you recommend
1: that? Yes, I did. Um, I have to, you know, because I do medication with Matilda at night, I'm, tend to be, you know, not quite so awake at certain times of the day. So for me it's really been important to stay connected to the family and the kids and and what's going on with the professor. So I get them off to school and the other, the other thing that's quite important to writing as well as just sort of sanity and my sleep habits, but is actually to do a little bit of exercise, not too much, but so I hit, I hit the gym or Zumba or something between like eight and nine and then head back to the house. And I write between 10 and two in the afternoon. And is that because that's a great, yeah, it's my most creative time for yeah, you. It was okay. my most alert, Okay, awake Um, and then I sort of, after that, I think, I mean, for me, I can't, I can't really do a lot more than four to five hours of intensive writing. And sometimes it's revision or, um, if I'm having, you know, if if I hit a wall with a paragraph, I'll ditch it and, and read, uh, read memoir or just immerse myself in, in the genre or just get some writing tips or blog, switch to my blog or website, So really those four hours and then after that, once the kids are home, it's all over. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) And yes, it is. Um, It truly is all over. (laughs) Okay, Claire, what do you wish you would have known when you began this process?
1: I think the answer to that is somewhere rests in self-belief. I think I wish I'd known I actually could hold that book because there are so many days where I thought I can't do it and it's too hard and certain obstacles that would come my way, like getting rejected from publishers, Uh, you know, you have to develop a really, really thick skin and make this decision that, you know what, everyone has a bad day and that is not going to change the trajectory that I'm on. So, um, I think a little bit more self-belief, just you can do it, you can do it, you can do it.
2: How can you give that self-belief to a listener? who's going through that right now because it's you're you're saying that on Mm -hmm. the on the other side on the other side you've come out there so what could you have done or is it just a just just believe even if there's no evidence of anything (laughs) other than um you can do it
1: no I think it's like it's that question isn't it how hungry are you how much do you want it Like, are you prepared to sacrifice things and move your calendar and put some aspects of your life on hold and take it when people say, "Mm, you know, have you thought about doing something else or, um, or you get rejections? Like what voice are you listening to? Are you listening to that? Or is it that, that fire in your belly, that inner voice that says, you know what, I'm going to do it. And if I have to move obstacles, I'll move them and I'll pick myself up the next day, however tired I am and however hard it is, because at the end of this, I'm going to get this done.
2: And was getting it done about getting the book published or was getting it done about getting this story of Matilda and your your life and your family's life? What was the mm. What was the thing that, and perhaps it switched day yeah. to day, but yeah. what was the thing that fueled that fire in your belly
1: yeah I think early on it was definitely about getting the story out and um just working through all those memories and those emotions and that was sort of a bit ugly for the first two years and I'd once I'd processed that and it it was therapeutic to put it I hate that but it it actually was really helpful to to put it down because I felt like you know people the doctors should have listened to us and they should have taken us seriously and she should have had treatment and we shouldn't have had to have moved halfway around the world to to get her the care yeah. that all these other kids in the UK still don't have so there was some kind of validation in that putting those things down but towards the end of the project so easy to give up at the end because it yeah. just gets harder yeah in the last three or four months there are, there were incredible obstacles to overcome and, uh, and then it became more about like, I've got the story down, now I need to put it in people's hands. So, so it did change slightly and it's, you know, do I finish this project, project or does it, does it go under, does it go in the drawer? I don't know.
2: And well, and now that it is finished um, and you have that piece in your hand mm-hmm. that you can be proud of, it's not over. You are still trying to get it right. in people's hands. Yeah. So, what has that um, challenge been like? And is it something that you feel prepared for because you have this book and you're mm-hmm. like no I want to I, I believe in this now right. or is it altogether a new challenge well
1: I love learning mm-hmm. um, and I do sort of like a new challenge really so <laughs> I, think, I think I'm on board for a new challenge it is completely new to me this sort of post-launch marketing because just mm-hmm. when you think oh I can you know sit down and plan a vacation it's like okay and your sales are dipping so what are you yeah. going to do about it um, and there's, again, there's a lot of resources and energy around post-launch marketing. And um, I'm sort of seeing it as a new a new learning curve, really. So it's quite exciting. Yeah. And the
2: post-launch uh, dip is natural. It's, right. totally. it's expected. Totally. And that's why those first few weeks are yeah. so important. You know, you could
1: write the best book in the world and it, it'd be over yeah. in six months. and. Yeah. um so it's really what's next, yeah. That's that's the million dollar question. Have you seen anything, or
2: perhaps it's even in this, uh, you know, some of the resources that you shared with us um, that has addressed the the marketing strategy? Something to look out for, something to to mm-hmm. plan ahead that. Um, maybe you didn't listen to and you said, oh, if
1: only I would have. Right. Yeah. Because then, you know, when you do a website and a blog, I mean, I love the writing side of it. Never been super comfortable in front of a camera. So I've sort of Shied away from that, and over and over again, you can see when people put like a twenty-second video, like the one you put of your daughter. Yeah. I like I watch all those; they're brilliant the oh. her singing, <laughs> her singing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and there's yes, some, yes. there's something about video that just catches yeah. people. And I I've not done that, and I probably just should buy some gear and or.
2: I think you should,
1: and I think you should.
2: Do you don't have to buy any gear? You, you know, some people, lots of people, love you. They can, they can come up with oh a video dear. for you. But I've seen you live. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at your book launch, right. and you were hilarious. <laughs> and you told the story in such a compelling way, which our viewers have just listened to to that themselves. But um, you brought something that was really painful. Um, you 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 brought some humor to it. you brought real life to it, mm-hmm. and you made the audience around you aware of what their own Matilda story is okay. in their life. Okay. And I think part of that is because we're experiencing you live. So okay. I'm encouraging okay. you to get in front of a <laughs> that's camera a good challenge. plus you're adorable. Oh, you're so, so come so on get get in front of okay. a camera I'll you can do it. it. Uh, I think you should. <laughs> um, so I mean, I think that's something that you're saying to the listener, mm-hmm. actually, like, take advantage yeah. of some of the mediums that are out right. there just because you're writing and you're a writer doesn't mean you can't take advantage yeah. of whatever else there is have you benefited from mm. from social media yeah, in that
1: i have in fact it was i think it was you that taught me the hashtag about two years ago yeah. i never even heard of a hashtag <laughs> i think you. we're yeah. on the phone and i'm thinking yeah. what's a hashtag yeah <laughs> i've come a long way in that time in fact i mean the one thing i want to get a bit more into i can't, my my kids won't believe i'm saying this but, but it's youtube isn't it yeah. Because yeah. those those pithy videos that these authors write that are super funny and they're like in the back of their garage and yeah. the dog's like throwing up in the background. Yeah. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I can well, do that. it makes that, them actually. very real. It makes them it's very real. It's so real. And I think that's, that's what you relate to, you yeah. know. I mean, I would still love to have lunch with J.K. Rowling, but I'd, I'll take the YouTube videos and... So, yeah, get... They're not mutually exclusive. No, we right. I should do both. Dream bigger yeah, girl. Yeah, yeah. Dream bigger. Um, so, yeah, I would I would sort of try and push out into some of these areas of social media that you might not necessarily think's you. Yeah. Um, because, hey, what's the worst that can happen? You can laugh at yourself. And we all make mistakes. And I think you know, it looks great, the book looks great, and it looks like this great success. But I tell you, for every day that's been successful, I've probably had seven that have been terrible. Yeah. Okay, so that's,
2: I think, a really important piece of information that everyone should just assume.
1: No, I've cried buckets over not being able to write a sentence or what did or, you do? What did you do in those situations? Did you learn um, to walk away, or did, did you push through? I did. Sometimes I did cry for for you know through myself. A, a, sort a good of 20, cry. A twenty we'll minute the pity yeah. party. Yeah. But I, my husband's very much like, get over it. Get up. Get on. Yeah. You can do it. I believe in you. And so I've had I've had like a homemade cheerleader, and that's been huge. Because I do respect, like, I honestly don't think he would say it was good if it was rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> I no, really don't I don't think he would. His I name don't think would he go would. down, wouldn't it? Um, so I think, no, I have, I have, you know, really hit some bad points with it. But it all, all boils down to this this notion I was raised, really, sort of in, in West London in the 70s. You know, never, ever give up. Yeah, And somehow that's stuck with me. I think it's a. I think it's a good thing to have stick
2: mm. with you. Um, I want to go back to something you just said about your husband and a great cheerleader. Right. So if we can anticipate for every one day, there's a <laughs> good day. There's seven bad oh, yeah. days. It sounds like having a support system, whether right. it's a writing group, right. whether it's a built-in cheerleader like mm-hmm. a husband or a spouse, I should say. Um, who, it sounds right. like you're saying it's necessary to have that because you've already talked about how much time you're spending right. alone, yep. and you. I think that self-talk, that negative self-talk, can mm-hmm. really eat you up as a writer. You're mm-hmm. not in necessarily in community with other people right. on a daily basis. Right. When you, so, yes, you're saying have a cheerleader. Yeah, find find okay. some. When you have that cheerleader yeah. are they the people that are supposed to be reading bits of the book and saying yes keep going no this is terrible mm. are they are is that right. the same person it
1: shouldn't be in an ideal okay. world I mean I had to get um Oliver had to read the book because he's in it and I was acutely aware of the um, many times where he would crop up in a chapter and maybe not be completely happy with what, what I'd sort of recorded. But yeah, ide- ideally, I think you try and um, separate, separate those people that you've asked to read the book and your chapters and feedback. And, and those, for me, that was my writing group, but also um, some some kind of people that I knew in the writing business, who were sort of impartial, but I could rely on their um, feedback as being honest because it's no good if you just tell me it's great and it's not. Um, so your cheerleaders are those people that are going to have you know coffee with you and ask how it's going, even if it's going terribly, and they're still going to say, "Hey, you know what? You're doing a great job. Keep going." So, yeah
2: I think I, I'm glad that you made that distinction mm-hmm. because I think sometimes we assume it's the person right. who loves us the most and it's closest to us and they're right. not always the in person fact, I, did, I did make that. the
1: mistake of sending it sending a few chapters to my sister because she's a reader and she was also in the book and but I, I sort of had in my head that she would send it you know send some comments back you know critical comments yeah. um and she just sort of got got a few chapters in and said it's too heartbreaking I can't do it and I realized uh-huh. at that point that I'd asked too much of her and she was the wrong person to because she's my sister and she loves me so yeah I can't expect her to come heavily down on me for my, you know, grammar or sentence structure Well, especially or, given the subject matter. Right. If so the subject matter were different. I learned, yeah. I, I learned some Okay, that. so
2: subject matter matters. Yes. it's good, good to know. Okay, okay. so this, we're going to switch things up again. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of our fun, silly part of the interview that we just, we want Never. our readers to get to know you a bit, so we call <laughs> it our quick six. So, I'm just going to ask you a question and just quickly give um, your answer. Okay. So, do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? schedule how come I knew that you, you were <laughs> gonna say that um vacation in the mountains or the
1: beach it's um difficult mountains well both but mountains first then beach. okay Ma- okay
2: It's good to have them in order. Um, Prefer working from home or an office? Definitely home. Okay. Well, I wish everyone could see. um, (laughs) We're going to take pictures of Claire's um, writing den. It's outside amongst the trees. It's (laughs) absolutely adorable. Um, And then would you rather work alone or with a team? I think we know the answer
1: alone but i i like a little i like a small team to back me up especially when it comes to technology i need a bit yeah. of help with that so yeah. I do you have a little team know what you're not good back. at and get oh, those I people oh i definitely know what i'm not good at <laughs> um and then
2: would you prefer thai or mexican food
1: um years ago it would have been thai cuz thai thai food's great in england Uh, They don't have Mexican here, but fallen in love with Mexican food since living in L.A. So I'm afraid that's now Mexican. Okay. All right. You're
2: the second person that's answered that. So I'm glad to have some people liking Mexican food. And then this one... um, my favorite question, you know, the name is Liberty oh, Sessions. Yeah. And we've named it that because we think that women can be liberated through pursuing whatever they're passionate mm-hmm. about. Um, so what does it mean for you to be liberated, Miss Claire Chris?
1: Well, there's two answers to that. I'll be quick. Um, first, for me, I mean, it would have been a different answer years ago. But of course, now I think the answer to that means to be free of of emotional pain and to be able to kind of um, live a life fully that while isn't you know, perhaps ideal or not exactly what I thought I was signing up to is, is still very rich and wonderful and, and, and not to be in that place where I felt trapped and heartbroken. Mm-hmm. So, and the other answer to that is, you know, my daughter, my eldest daughter is called mm-hmm. Liberty. I do. I do. And, um, the professor named her when the moment she was born, cause I had these other cute names lined up like Imogene and, you know, Hermione and this sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we'd lost our first baby some years before, and um, when the professor bought this this scrunched up little ball, six pound ball to my side, he said, "We're going to call her Liberty." And frankly, I'd never we hadn't even talked about it. And I'm like, "Where you've changed you changed the plan. That's that's not right. You yeah. know, she's going to be Cressida or something." Yeah. And he said, no, her name is Liberty because she has set me free. Oh, oh, I love that. (laughs) So I love that name. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for being with us. Thank Mm -hmm. you for being honest and sharing your adventure. Can you tell us really quickly where we can get the book, Waking Matilda?
1: Yeah, go to Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. It's called Waking Matilda, A Memoir of Childhood Narcolepsy. Um, or check out my website, Claire C. Crisp. That's C L A I R E C for Christine and Crisp, C R I S P dot com, and you'll find the book and my blog and um, some cool photos and and we'll have photos. all of
2: that in the show notes too. So Thank there's you. no chance that right. somebody won't have the information Sounds they good. need. All right, Claire, thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Liberty For Her is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty For Her on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty For Her is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham, and music by Jordan Flower. likely the case that if you're listening to this podcast, you've either launched or want to launch a venture. And whether you're in growth mode or just getting started, it can be a lonely endeavor. Trust us, we know, which is exactly why we connected with Entrepreneurista. We wanted our community of podcast listeners to have access to the tools, the resources and other female founders to connect with. So there's no reason to do this thing alone. In fact, we dare you not to. A few of the perks from Entreprenista include building your reputation. You'll get featured on their website, growing your business through office hours with their founders, Stephanie and Courtney introductions to other investors, Uh, exclusive discounts, connecting with the right people in the community, people who can really advance the work that you're doing and people that you can help along the way. Get invited to all sorts of conferences, events, And you can write this whole thing off as a business expense. That's the best part. Well, that's one of the best parts. And to make this dare a little bit easier, head to www.entrepreneista.com backslash Liberty and use the code Liberty25 for $25 off their membership fee. And for the record, I just became a paying member myself. So I'll see you over there.